Uh, today's scripture is going to be from Isaiah 61, 1 through 7. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to pro proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of the faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good afternoon, Echo. Let's open up our text, if we haven't already, to Isaiah 61. We're going to continue in what, is, uh, what has become a two-part series now. We had part one last week. And that was covering the same text. And some of you remember uh, Nicole Vestergaard was here reading the text last week. And she went from verse 1 into just the beginning part of, of verse 2 and then stopped. And now here Taylor is reading the whole thing. And I want to remind us why that is. I, I want to remind us what Jesus actually did with this text when he was in his own hometown of Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. So if you want to open up to Luke 4, you can, but I'm going to put it up on the screen here, and I want you to see something that I showed you guys last week. And just to make sure we're 100% clear, over here on the right is Luke chapter 4, where we see Jesus standing in the synagogue, opening up the scroll, which would have been their version of the, the Bible, right? It would have been the book. And he's opening it up. And he turns to the spot where he's supposed to read in Isaiah chapter 61, and he reads, you can see it on the highlighted region on the right, which is almost the same as what's on the left. You'll see there's one spot that's a little different. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and then he stops. And it says in the text in Luke chapter 4 that all eyes were upon him. It says that, that they, they, they were shocked. Why? Because Jesus had stopped mid-sentence, not mid-verse, just that, mid-sentence. And then he says... With the all eyes in the synagogue fixed upon them, he began to say to them, and it says it right down there on the bottom of the screen, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he stopped where he did because he's identifying in his first coming, the coming that happened 2,000 years ago, there were certain things that he was to be about. And we said this last week. What Jesus was to be about in his first coming was the proclamation of the gospel. The good news. 
that Jesus himself would actually institute by his death on the cross. So he was no mere herald, and I said this last week, he was no mere herald just simply given somebody else's news. This was his news. He was the one that would actually fulfill this. He would die so that the good news would go forth. And we said last week that the good news would cleanse, it would bind up the wounds. You remember I got gross last week talking about wounds, open wounds, and how they can look like their surface, on the surface they've been closed up and all is well, but deep down inside there's gangrene, there's bacteria, flesh-eating bacteria working on the, the inner parts of the wound and destroying the person from the inside out. And Jesus says, I have come to bind up those wounds. Praise God. The wounds that lie deep inside of us, Jesus says, I've come to bind them up. But then he switched the metaphor a little bit, right? He didn't just come to bind the wounds inside of us. He came to free us from captivity. That's what the text says. Freed us from captivity. That we are under a system, it says in Ephesians chapter 1. That we are following the course of this world. That where Satan is essentially the, the captain, in a sense, of this world and leading the world in a certain direction. And we were, by nature, children of wrath, the Bible says. But that's what we were. Because Jesus came to set the captives free. And by faith, we come to him for healing of our wounds that we have inside of us. Every one of us has it. And freedom from the captivity of the world. That was his first coming. And he stopped there to identify that that's what his first coming was to be about. But now, we're going to look at his second coming. The coming that has not yet happened yet. The coming that we wait for. The coming that the Bible says will be like a thief in the night. When will it be? We don't know. But we're told a lot about it. Now, here's what I want to do. I want us to see, first of all, that the Bible speaks about his second coming. I want you guys to all to see the, the texts, the biblical texts that talk about his second coming. So first, I want you to see that he comes again. Second of all, I want you to see why he comes again. What is going to characterize his coming when he comes again? So let's do that now. Let's jump into the Bible together. Let's start with Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. You can turn there if you want to. Here's the context of this passage. So we're going to spend a little bit of time in the Bible. We're just going to skim. We're going to, we're going to skip from verse to verse to verse. I want you to see what the Bible says now about Jesus in his second coming. Here's the deal. The context so far in Acts is that Jesus is giving his disciples final instructions before he ascends to heaven. Now, let's make sure we get something clear. His resurrection and his ascension are not the same thing. There are two different things here. Jesus died and rose again from the dead three days later. We celebrate that on Easter, right? 
He rose again from the dead. That was his resurrection. He was dead. He was raised to new life, and we call that the resurrection. And then what happened in Jesus' life is that he was, he was appearing to the disciples over a period of about 50 days. So after his resurrection, he would appear to various disciples in various ways. And then at the end of that roughly 50-day period, he makes one final appearance to a group of his disciples that are all gathered together. And that's what this passage is talking about right here. Jesus, in a final conversation, before he ascends visibly to heaven. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Notice that the disciples are confused. Do you, do you catch that there? They're confused about some things that we kind of get kind of prideful that we know because we, we've seen how all this is going. Remember, they're in the midst of this. They don't understand what's going on, but they're confusing something here. They're confusing Jesus' first coming with his second coming. They're asking him something specifically that is about his second coming. Lord, at this time, right now, with us standing right here, are you going to just take over? Are you going to bring, finally, restore Israel to what you said you would once do? Where we will be free of our Roman oppressors? Listen to how Jesus answers this in verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus doesn't give them a clear answer. He doesn't say, no, I'm not going to do that. And he certainly doesn't tell them, yes, I am going to do that. He simply tells them, it's not for you to know. Oh, how important this is for us. That there are some things that are simply declared by the Lord mystery. And we struggle with that. We struggle with, Lord, I, I don't understand. I, I don't know what's going on. We struggle with that when it comes to like the world and where it's going, right? Jesus, when are you coming back? Come on, just tell me. We struggle with that in our own lives, right? I was just talking with one of our members this morning. And she was saying that she had, that the Lord, she was trying to decide on, on whether to step into a new career. And she was struggling for a time because she wasn't hearing that audible voice from the Lord. You know what I'm talking about? Like the, that, that thing where the Lord just says, here it is. You're going to go and you're going to work at such and such location. How many of you have that happen all the time? I don't. But she, she said, at first I was struggling with that, but, but I, I was listening to other, some other Christians, and I was reading a, a particular book, and, and, and it freed me to realize that the Lord is, he is sovereign, and yet I have, I have freedom if I want to go pursue this particular career. 
But think about what's going on there in, in her heart and in many of your hearts as you guys are figuring out who do I marry, who do I, you know, what, what career do I have, where do I go to school, all of these things. The Lord just doesn't rarely, I'll just put it this way, rarely does the Lord beam you that knowledge and you just go, oh, okay, got it. I know exactly what I'm supposed to do. And we struggle with this, right? We want to know. And yet I think one of the things we lose when God just beams us that information, and again, I'm not saying it can't happen. It does happen, albeit rarely. One of the things we lose when God just says, this is the answer, boom, is we lose faith. You say, what? What do you mean we lose faith? Faith is believing and trusting in that which we cannot see. And when the Lord gives us the solution, when he just gives us the answer to the puzzle of our lives, we oftentimes can sort of set the Lord aside because now we got it figured out. That's all I needed him for, right? And, some, and the, the Lord is just so good because he, he is a father and he knows how to at times shroud certain things in mystery so that we will continue to seek him. And yet sometimes we got to get up and actually walk and go forward when we're not 100% sure. And he's doing that for his disciples right here. And this isn't where do I go to college. This is when are you coming back, Lord? When are you, when are you going to restore this world? A, a question that I think has been on many of our hearts in this last couple of weeks. When is this all going to be made new? When are you going to come and bring, been a lot of talk about justice, right? When are you going to come and bring your justice, Lord? And I mean the biblical form of the Lord's justice. When are you going to bring that? It is not for you to know the times or the seasons. Are we okay with that? But he doesn't stop there. Notice what else he says. But you, disciples... And by extension, you and I, all of those who are trusting in the Lord right now or hearing my voice, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. I'm not going to give you the answer, church. That's what he says. But I am going to give you power to sustain you. As long as you need to be sustained until I come. How many of you, how many of you can hear that and just let your faith inside of you just expand right now? I need it. I needed to hear this. I don't get answers from the Lord sometimes. I get power to sustain me until he comes back. I need that. This is the same Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that Jesus is promising to these disciples. This is the whole same Holy Spirit that dwells in you, church. 
Here's what Paul tells us. He tells us that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you and I. So sometimes you feel like, I don't know if I can make it. I don't know if I can keep going. I feel the darkness. I feel, the, I, feel the, I feel down. I feel the depression. I feel anxiety. I don't know if I can keep hanging on. And Jesus says, I have given you what you need. Keep seeking me. Keep going to that source of power because it is there in you in the form of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. So let's let that sustain us. Whether Jesus comes back tomorrow or whether he comes back a hundred years from now and we are long gone. Now, the verse continues, verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who, has, who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, this is what we want to look at now for our purposes this week. This section, these verses that I just read are kind of the key idea here. Because notice that the angels are standing right next to the disciples as the disciples are looking up. What did they just see? What did they just see? They saw Jesus raise bodily and go up into heaven. I mean, crazy stuff, right? So defying gravity, he is going up into heaven. And it says that he kind of gets like he goes up into the clouds and is gone. That's really important. Don't miss that. That's what they just saw. And as they're looking up, kind of just, I imagine just gawking, right? Like looking upwards and going, what did I just see? Here are two men, angels, standing next to them, and they say, why are you guys looking up? Well, that's an obvious answer, right? We're looking up because we just saw something crazy happen. But then they say, this same Jesus who went up that way is going to return in the same way he went up. That's really important. Really important for us. Here's what this tells us, friends. Jesus is returning bodily, and he's returning in the air. I don't know how to take that any other way. If any of you want to challenge me on that, great. We can have a conversation on that. That seems to be what the angels are saying right here. In the same way he left, he's coming back. So we're going to be able to look up at some point in this earth's existence, look up, and there will be Jesus. How will the whole earth see him if it's a globe? I don't know. I don't know. But that's what the text says. So Jesus is coming back visibly. He's coming back in the clouds. Now, let's jump to another text that seems to be describing the same moment of his return. Let's look now at Revelation chapter 19. What will he do when he returns Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. John is the author of Revelation. He says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. That word means crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, there is a lot to take in there, and I don't have time to take in every piece of what was said there. But notice, again, Jesus is coming out of heaven. He is coming with the clouds. It says that heaven opened and he came down. Notice in verses 19, 12, that he is described exactly as Jesus. By the way, what I read in the beginning of this service, the prayer of adoration, was Revelation chapter 1, where Jesus is first described. This is the same description. There's a lot of, it's not the, the full description, it's just, it's using a lot of the same descriptors that Revelation chapter 1 was using. He is described as Jesus was described, such as the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. This is the same one spoken of at the beginning of the book. Now he has come to earth in the end of the book. Notice that he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Where does that come from? What's happening there? It comes from Isaiah chapter 63, just two chapters later from where we are right now. Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 4, I'll I'll put it up on the screen for us. Who is this who comes from Edom? In crimson, that means blood-colored. In crimson garments from Basra. He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength, it is I. Speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Now the person asks, why is your apparel red and your garments like he, like his who treads in the winepress? He answers, I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. So why is Jesus in Revelation chapter 19 clothed in these red stained garments? Because when Jesus comes again, he is coming to bring the wrath of God. It says this multiple places in scripture, including in our text. Let's look at Isaiah 61 now. I'm going to read from verse 1 again. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me 
because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now stop. That's where Jesus stopped, right there. That was his first coming. But look at the next item, which is now having to do with his second coming. And the day of vengeance of our God. And he goes on to comfort all who mourn. And then he will say one more thing, which we will get into in a moment. Here's the main point. If you're taking notes. When Jesus comes again, he will bring wrath, comfort, and reward. What you receive depends on who you are when he comes. Remember that Jesus divided that text, okay? He divided it up. So now we are dealing with his second coming, and we're dealing with what he says now is in his second coming, the day of vengeance of our God. And here's what it says about Jesus in John 3, 17. Remember, his first coming was not about vengeance. His first coming in, in Isaiah 61 is about proclaiming the gospel, the good news. It's a, pro, it's a proclaiming kind of ministry. It's a preaching kind of ministry. He walked around for three years preaching the gospel. Here's what John says, John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now that's a description of his first coming. He, he was not here to bring the wrath of God. He was here to speak the truth about how we can be saved from the wrath of God. He preached about himself as being the only way out. And then he died on a cross, making good on his promise that he would be the one to whom we could look, to whom we could cling to and be saved from the wrath of God. That was his ministry. That was what he did. He didn't come to condemn the world. But what does Jesus himself say about his second coming? Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 and 32. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, this is now Jesus' second coming, future. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And what we find as that passage goes on is that the sheep go on to everlasting life and the goats go on to everlasting torment. In other words, this is the judgment of God. And Jesus says, it's when I come again. So Jesus will bring judgment and he will bring vengeance of God to the earth when he comes. Now here is a judgment that God has been sort of storing up for a long time. Okay, Jesus is going to release. In the past, I've talked about the fact that a lightning, um, uh, the way lightning works is that there is this buildup of force, of electrical force, if you will. 
that happens in the sky. And it eventually gets so high, this buildup of these charged particles, that eventually they just have to release, and they release through the air, and we call it lightning. It's basically an explosion that happens in the air because of these charged particles that have been storing and storing and storing up power until they finally release. And I've described before that the wrath of God is somewhat like this. There's actually a storing up of the wrath of God. Listen to what Romans says in Romans 2.5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, it's important that you understand the context of that chapter. That chapter is, being, is speaking to Jews who have not put their trust in Christ. And he says, you don't get to slide by simply because of your Jewishness. Simply because of who you are and your, your, your ethnicity. You don't get to. You are, like everyone else, storing up wrath for yourself. So this is the description now of all humankind outside of Christ. Okay, but Jesus moves on here. He doesn't just say it's all about the wrath and the vengeance of God. What is the next thing that Jesus says? He says that it's also a day of comfort. He's bringing comfort. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Now, this is a description coming from the other side of Jesus coming. In other words, we're in Revelation 21, two chapters after Jesus came in Revelation 19. So it's describing now the new state of life, the new way that things will be, where every tear will be wiped away, where there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more pain for, what does he say at the end? The former things have passed away. What does that mean? It means in the former life, there were all of those things. That's a description of us now. In this life, there is tears. There are tears. There is mourning. There is pain. There is death. We experience all of these things as Christians. And it causes our hearts to grieve. There is a way of completely misunderstanding the Bible that tries to avoid pain and suffering and death for the Christian. And it's a tragedy and it's a heresy. Yes. And it says that if you're a Christian, and if you're a good enough Christian, you can be free from all of this disease and pain and you can just go walk out on the street and not have to worry about COVID because if you just have enough faith, it's not going to get you. And this has been around for 2,000 years. This has been around longer than 2,000 years. 
It's a form of heresy which denies the fact of the world that we live in right now. And wouldn't it be nice? Do you see where the draw is? Wouldn't it be nice if we were living in heaven right now? But here's what that would do. It would remove this aching burden in our heart that is there by faith, which says, Lord, come quickly. There is something that glorifies God. And I, I don't understand this fully, but I just want to say it. There is something that glorifies God when God's people are enduring suffering and going through painful, difficult times, and they cry out for the Lord, Lord, come quickly. The phrase Maranatha. That has been a statement that the church has used from the earliest days in the midst of their agony and their pain. And the Lord says, I'm coming. But that glorifies me in the meantime. You're sustaining, you're being sustained by the power of the spirit as you cry out in your pain for me. And there is a day coming where it will all be gone. And friends, that's what gives us this, this sustaining power. The fact that it's gonna be gone one day. This isn't eternal. If you feel like this is hell on earth, this is the closest thing you'll get to hell if you're in Christ. My brother-in-law is a, a Navy SEAL, and I got to tour the Navy SEAL base this week. It was awesome. It was, it was so manly. It was like I just felt like I had to talk with a deeper voice and, and, and grunt a lot, you know? But I got to see... I got to see the Navy SEALs in their training where they, where they go. They're trying to become Navy SEALs. It's called BUDS. I don't know if you guys have ever heard about this. But, but BUDS is this three-phased, 27-week um, training that basically brings you to the point of death. And there's this one part of BUDS. It's week three or week four. I can't remember which one it is. It's called Hell Week. And if you've ever had like Hell Week in sports, it doesn't come close. Hell Week begins Sunday night. And in all, by the time you hit Friday morning of that next week, you have slept four hours. They sustain, they put you in freezing cold water and bring you to the brink of hypothermia just to see who will quit. They run you until you have nothing left in you. And they just keep going and going and going until you finally hit Friday morning. And by that time, sometimes 75% of the class has quit. What sustains one of those guys? Well, there's lots of things you could probably say, right? There's a, there's a grit that they have. There's something different that maybe the guy next to them has that makes them stick around and stay. But... But here's the one thing I can say that every single one of those guys who makes it through to the end knows. This is going to be over. I, I don't know when. I don't, I don't even know what day it is. But at some point, they're going to say, this is over. And that sustains those who are able to make it through to the end. Christian, this is the same for you. You may feel like you're in the midst of hypothermic water, ready to just quit, ready to just feel like I've got nothing left to give. But here's what I can say to you. It's going to be over. 
And, and by eternity standards, it's going to be over in a flash. And he will come. And he will restore the world in all of its brokenness. He will restore the world to what it once was. And he will set himself up as the king over his kingdom. And he will wipe every tear from your eyes. And there will be no more death. And finally, he will bring a reward to those who have made it through. Look at Isaiah 61.3. What else is he doing now? I'm going to pick up in the middle of the verse. To grant, this is what he's been called to do in his second coming, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, and they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. What do we see happening there? Crowns of righteousness being given. Clothing. One of the things in Revelation that we see is that the saints are wrapped, they, the clothing, they are wrapped in robes of, white, of righteousness. That's what it says about the saints at the end that we've been given this robe to put on. These are gifts that he gives to us. I don't know exactly know what they are. I don't know if you cash them in for something. I don't know what heaven, I don't, I don't know what a reward means in heaven. It seems to me that the, the elders, the 24 elders have crowns on their head and they just keep putting it back at Jesus' feet. And that may be what we do. We are so in awe of him that we're taking the things that we've been given, we're just laying them back down at his feet because how are we worthy of any of that? But the Bible does seem to speak about reward. And it does seem to say you should want it. Don't store up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but do what? Store up treasure in heaven. I don't know what that is exactly, but I just know I'm supposed to store that up, Jesus says. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Here's what Paul says at the very end of his life, by the way. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Who is it that those who have loved his appearing? It is those who have come to Christ by faith, the Holy Spirit has been poured into their hearts. They now, in sanctification, begin to love what Jesus loves. They begin to hate what Jesus hates. 
They begin to become more and more like him as they go on in sanctification in their life. And one of the things they are drawn to do, those who have put their trust in Christ, is to yearn for the day where he will appear. This is one of the marks of a Christian. This is one of the marks of someone who has not put all of their eggs in the basket of the world, but who feels the ache of one day I'm going to be home. This isn't my home. I am going to be home one day. Is that you, Christian? Because what Paul says right there in 2 Timothy is that there's a crown of righteousness for you too if, did you you notice the if? For all those who, everyone who, if you, who have loved his appearing, who have an ache in their heart for that moment where he will return. So let us not love the world. Not to the point where we are so happy and at home here that, oh, Jesus, please don't come because there's a lot of things I want to get done here. Let us set that aside and trust God's word when he says that his coming is going to be so, so sweet for us. And let's cry out. And the worse the world gets, I have no guarantee you it's going to get any better. The worse the world gets, the more we will feel that burden on our hearts of our cry of Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray. Lord, we come now begging you for that heart that was just described. All of those who have loved your appearing, who are looking for that day of your appearing. Lord Jesus, we want that crown of righteousness. We want you. But that crown of righteousness means that we have clung to you and we have held firm and we have endured and we have been victorious to the end. Why? Because we're great? No, Lord. You've told us why. Because your Holy Spirit is at work inside of us and you get all the glory. So sustain us to the end. We don't know when you're coming. We feel that the world As the song says, the shadows are deepening. We feel it. And I pray that as we feel it, we would long all the more that you would bring your kingdom here and that you would wipe every tear from our eyes. Give us that mourning. Give us that longing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.